Hello and welcome to the Scottish Politics Podcast. It's David Clegg here. I'm the political editor of the Daily Record and thank you for joining us for this special summer treat. It's a slightly different edition of the Scottish Politics Podcast today. I said before the Scottish Parliament broke for recess that we would make a few cameo appearances with the old podcast during the summer break. This is the first of those. Uh, it's a discussion with Anna Sarwar, the Glasgow MSP. Uh, there's been several stories in the record in the last few months, in fact, since from the start of the year, about Islamophobia and some of the issues of racism that Anna Sarwar has been raising through the cross-party group on Islamophobia, which she set up at the Scottish Parliament at the start of January. I thought it would be worthwhile, given what has dominated the news agenda over the summer, to catch up with Anas uh, and discuss some of those issues in a bit greater depth than we maybe have the chance to during the pace of the Scottish parliamentary term. We talk a lot about Islamophobia. We also discuss anti-Semitism and the issues the Labour Party have had with that recently. And I think it's quite a worthwhile discussion. Uh, before I go on to play that interview, uh, I'll just talk a bit about what we're planning to do with the podcast in the coming months. The Scottish Parliament is obviously back at the start of September and the podcast will return. We're going to maybe play about with the format a bit, so if you have any suggestions on that, please get in touch. Uh, and thank you for continuing to listen. Uh, with no further ado, here's Anna Sarwar. Anna Sarwar, thank you for joining us. Uh, the When I first wrote a story about uh, Islamophobia, your experience of it, uh, and some of the issues that you were hoping to campaign about it at the start of the year, I didn't realise it would flare up quite as, as much as it has. It's uh, been a big story in Scotland and it's it's a, been a UK-wide story now, Ra- racism, uh, whether it be Islamophobia or anti-Semitism, uh, has dominated the news agenda in the UK all summer. I just want to take it back a little bit to begin with. Uh, obviously, your father is Mohammed Sarwar, uh, who was the first Muslim MP elected in Britain. So these must have been issues that you've been aware of of a very young age. Can you maybe tell us a bit what it was like to grow up as the son of the first Muslim MP? Um, lo- lots of funny stories I could tell you, but perhaps not appropriate for the, for the <laughs> podcast, uh, David. <clears throat> I suppose um, pride. I've, I've got immense pride in, um, in, in my father and in, in, um, in his politics and his um, determination and his courage. And, and genuinely, I mean courage. I, d- I don't mean courage as a as a, a flippant political word or, or just as a as a soundbite. He is he is probably one of the strongest people I've ever encountered in my in my life. Probably second only to my mother, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um because um I saw firsthand um the struggles that he went through being the uh, potentially the first uh, Muslim member of parliament, um the struggles he had in terms of his selection. Um, I think it's easy for people to forget the background story of of how he got to being in a place where he could be elected uh, Britain's first uh, Muslim MP. Um, And I I often find it quite funny when people try and accuse me of being part of some kind of Labour Party establishment of the old Blairite years when, in actual fact, if you charter my family's political history, um, it was very much challenging the establishment rather than being part of the establishment. The establishment decided they didn't want him to be a candidate um, for the Labour Party in, in Glasgow government, they did everything they could to try and stop him being a candidate. Um, there was 
obviously allegations of a of a rigged selection contest which had to be overthrown um, in the high court um, and rerun again which he won comfortably the second time for him to even be the candidate in the first place but specifically on the point about um, racism and Islamophobia uh, one of my earliest um, memories as a child and it's something that stuck with me um, throughout my childhood throughout my adult life and will probably stay with me for the rest of my life and it'll be a story I tell my, my children and, and maybe my grandchildren one day as well is um, leaving the house one morning to go to school and this was before my father had become an MP this was when he was um, a candidate in the run up to the election um, leaving to go to school seeing what looked what like year, a, What year was that then? I it must have been 1996, I would imagine. So maybe maybe 95, 95, 96. So I would have only been 12, 13 years old. Uh, leaving the house to go to school, seeing this strange-looking letter lying at the front door, um, rather stupidly picking it up and opening it, um, although it wasn't addressed to me. Um, and there was a picture mocked up of my mum um, tied to a chair with two guns pointed to her head um, with um, it written simply in, car, in cut-out letters, newspaper cut-out letters, bang, bang, that's all it takes. Um, and it was a message from Combat 18. And that followed on a series of messages um, and was followed up by a series of messages um, threatening the safety and security of my father and his family um, if he chose to continue standing for election. And um, this was a message just because you're the race and religion of your father and yep. his decision yep. to stand for political office. Yeah. So I mean, the 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 claim then was, you know, if you if you let one Muslim into the parliament, it's going to have an influx of Muslims in the parliament. And I'm, I say this with with pride. Uh, I'm I'm glad that every election since that election, 1997, the number of Muslims in parliament has doubled in each election. So it was one. And then the parliament after it was two, the parliament after it was four, the parliament after it was eight. Um, so long, long may that continue. Even at um, that ratio, it would take quite a while for there to be significant representation in that yeah, parliament. Look, I, I think, I think there's, a, there's a couple of things within that. One is, I think it's important for parliaments to reflect society. So there's diverse voices, diverse backgrounds, people of all faiths, all backgrounds. Um, but also within that, I think what's, what's changed in the, since the 90s and now is I think there was a genuine feeling back in the 90s that somehow if a Muslim member of parliament was elected or someone from an Asian background was elected, they would be there only as a representative of Muslims or of or of Asian communities. Actually, I think that's changed now. I, I've never called myself a Muslim member of the Scottish parliament or when I was an MP, a Muslim member of parliament. I, I don't regard myself as an Asian member of parliament or an Asian member of the Scottish parliament. I am a Glasgow member of the Scottish parliament a proud Glaswegian who represents and proud to represent all Glas all Glaswegians regardless of their faith or nationality or their background. Um, and I think that, that in itself is is testament to where, where we're going as a country. You mentioned the point about um, the story that we did back in, in January and um, I would say the, ex the explosion that's come from that. I, I, I honestly didn't expect um, the, the months that followed the way they did to, to shape out the way they did. Um, <clears throat> for the fact that I think for weeks, we had um, a numerous stories regarding racism, Islamophobia, and um, in the record and in, in wider uh, media as well. And that was a really, really difficult decision for me to make uh, to talk about my own experiences. And 
And the reason why I decided to speak about my own experiences was firstly, I recognised that Islamophobia was on the rise and I felt that I would only be in a credible position to talk about Islamophobia if I shared my own experiences. Because if, if even someone like me was experiencing Islamophobia, then what about people who don't have access? It's interesting that you say it's, not, it's on the rise because obviously that's a very disturbing and dramatic story from your childhood. I mean, and that was that was 20 years ago. Yep. You think it's worse now than it was then? I think it's, I think it's different now. Uh, and the reason I think is different now in in the nineties that I, that I referred to, I think it was more blatant, more in your face, more aggressive racism, um, rather than Islamophobia, more aggressive racism. And I think it was from a a set part of the community. And I think you can look at the election results in nineteen ninety seven, where the people of Glasgow government didn't care what colour the old man was or what faith the old man was. They cared about what he was as a person. Um, and I think that tells you something brilliant about the city of Glasgow and why I love Glasgow. And, and I think what's changed now, um, and, and this is partly why we're doing the work we are on, on Islamophobia, racism and other forms of equality, is I think there are now too many forces uh, within British politics, within uh, global politics, who have legitimised hateful views, hateful opinions for political reasons. Um, and I fear that we are becoming a more divided nation, a more divided world rather than a um, a, a more closer knit world. And I'll give an example of that. And 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 and, it, and again, it pains me to say this. I I changed my view in the last year. So if you'd asked me a year ago, or even two two or two years ago, about how I felt the world was moving or how I felt Scotland or the UK was moving, I genuinely believe that my kids were going to grow up. In a post-racial world, I, th- I thought my just a year ago you thought that yeah, as, um, uh, probably before the Trump presidency and before uh, Brexit and before um, the so, referendum chaos, yeah. etc. So yeah, around the last year, two years, I, w- I would I would have probably said that my kids are going to grow up in a post-racial world. Actually, I said I'd say it to people um, where people won't see, I, I you know we'll live in a world where people don't see color, they don't see faith because social media is breaking down barriers. Um, we're living in a global village now where things, tragedies that happen on the other side of the world are, are felt by all of us and we, f- we feel an equal pain in tragedies whether they happen in our own home or they happen somewhere else I don't feel that way now I genuinely fear that my kids are going to grow up in a world that is more divided, more hate-filled and more prejudiced than the world I grew up in and I find that absolutely frightening um, And why do you think it's happened? I think there's a combination of factors of why it's happened. One, I think there is probably a generation of people who who fear change. They see the world changing, they see they see their communities changing, they see cultures changing, they see um things that don't don't feel normal to them changing and, and there's a reaction to that. Uh, I think the economic crash has got a huge part to play with it where um because of the economic crash, because of the failure of our economic system, because of the failure of our political um, system globally, that people are looking for people to blame. And for for too many people, it's easier to blame the difference and the other rather than um, look at what's happening uh, in the round. I think that's partly to blame. Um, Thirdly, I think while social media has been fantastic in opening up the world, I think it's probably helped legitimise lots of hateful views that people perhaps just kept to themselves before. And I'll give, yeah. you a practical, I'll give you a practical example of what I mean with that is before if, if 
if, if someone says something to you at your workplace, David, that upset you or got you angry or you saw something that upset or angered you, you would probably have time before you could rationalise it in your head and uh, project that opinion on other people. So by the time you got home, you would have calmed down a little bit, you would have thought about it, you would have rationalised in your head and you would have made a rationed um, uh, discussion about it or comment about it. I think now with social media, with its instant uh, approach, if you feel angry straight away, you feel hurt straight away, you feel um, any emotion at all, you can go on social media, you can express that opinion and you can find hundreds of other people who express that opinion mm. the same way as you do and then you then, for, you then fester in your anger, you fester in that negativity rather than being able to dilute it and I think that's got a big part to play in it as well. There's, there's, there's part, also an element of The final that. part is obviously is, is also politicians okay. um, and, and elements of, of, of media and I use media in the, in, the, in the broadest possible term because nowadays with social media feeds, everyone's a journalist and everyone's a politician. Um, uh, is p- people using dog whistle politics to, to for their own ends? Uh, your Steve Bannons, your Donald Trumps, your Boris Johnsons, people like, these, like this who use very, very emotive language very, very deliberately to get a reaction and the reaction from political expediency and nothing else. Let, let's let's talk about the social media stuff first before we move on to the, the dog whistles and the and the politicians. Is it, I, th- I suppose it's fair to say that the racist abuse that you receive now is primarily through social media. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's true. Although um, um, there's been recent cases around through email, something that you experience alongside me, David, for for I mean, for you having the audacity of reporting Islamophobia and racism, you were the um, you received death threats of, of your own, um, and, and 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 I apologise if that wasn't meant to be shared. But I'm, but I've, I've well, I, don't, it I don't think there's any need to apologise. What I what uh, I will, what I will say, and I don't want to pretend that I've uh, ex- experienced anything like uh, what Muslims and on the front line have received. But I, it was eye opening to me to just write a couple of stories about Islamophobia, and the reaction showed me that there is some very very toxic mm. views uh, and people mm. that that do exist that I think I had I had I had been a journalist for 15 years and thought that I'd seen pretty much everything there is to see in regards to that stuff but it was it was eye opening for me when that particular story and what it opened up well let's contrast that for a second right with so you asked whether I get majority of the abuse on on social media the answer to that is yes but I've, I've also had Letters through the, the post. I've, I've had anti-Muslim messages left on my, my phone. I've had um, comments made to me in the in the in the street. Um, uh, emails sent to me. Uh, and the the interesting thing is, if you look at uh, one particular video that was sent to me, which was clearly a th- of a threatening nature around um, what they were going to do to me and what they were going to do more widely to people of a certain faith and colour uh, across Britain um, and people that are on social media feeds or people that are on email addresses. These are people, one video was, was a, a group of people who were hiding behind black masks. All you could yeah. see was their eyes. 
You had people on social media hiding behind fake Twitter account names, email addresses that couldn't be traced with fake names or fake identities. It's amazing how all these people who want to hide behind a veil of Twitter <laughs> accounts or email accounts or balaclavas to make threats against Muslims and people of a certain colour are the very same people who are so angry about what women or a certain small section of women, less than 300 women across the UK choose to wear. Isn't that ironic how they want to hide their own face when they send death threats and abuse and hateful messages to people, but they want to decide, and predominantly men, these are men, angry men, want to decide what women wear. Do you think that social media has just exposed these people or made us aware of them, or do you think that it is helping create them, that it's that their, their message is being amplified through that platform? Um, I, I think it's helped uh, expose them. I think it's helped amplify the message. And what, what, what I fear is there are more and more people who come to me and say, you know, a friend of mine shared a Britain First post or a family member of mine shared a Britain First post or shared a, 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 a picture of Tommy Robinson or shared a message from, from X, Y or Z and they can't believe that someone who in their day-to-day interactions might be able to have these views and share these views. And, and I think there is an element of, of legitimising those views, um, which is very, very serious and very dangerous. Speaking of legitimisation, we should we should touch on the Boris Johnson yep. comments, which obviously have led led the news for days uh, earlier in the summer. Uh, what what did you? I know you were out at the country at the time, but what what did you make of his remarks? Look, for me, fundamentally, this comes down to one issue, fundamentally one issue, and that is it is not, and I can't say this strongly enough. It is not for any man, regardless of their gender, their faith, their nationality or anything else, to tell any woman, regardless of their faith, their nationality or anything else, what they should or should not wear. Can men just stop interfering with what women decide to wear and judging them? It's not on. It's sexist. And uh, when you look at Islamophobia in particular, I should, I should so much of Islamophobia is gendered in nature. The mm-hmm. biggest victims of racism and Islamophobia are actually women. Um, and what Boris Johnson was doing was very deliberate, was saying something, getting the reaction, and then he could play the cheeky chappy coming out in his mm-hmm. flowery purple shorts, giving out tea. It's deliberate. It's a CD political act to try and um, garner a certain section of support. And who pays the price? It's people on the street who become victims of, of hate crimes and abuse that pay the price. So you think that Boris Johnson's comments inevitably lead to street harassment of Muslim women? Well, uh, Muslim women who wear a hijab, uh, wear a niqab, or wear a burqa, or wear any other symbol of their faith, regularly receive abuse, whether that be comments, um, whether that be looks, whether that be... Um, assaults on a regular basis and there is already anecdotal evidence that that has increased or took a spike after Boris Johnson's comments yeah just you make the point that it could be viewed as uh, sexist to try and say that women shouldn't be wearing what any type of clothing there is obviously people who are uncomfortable or dislike these the burqa or other Islamic clothing often make the argument, you know, that it is that that is being man's will imposed on a woman. Do you do you see that argument? <clears throat> Look, so I mean, I I I am not 
I'm not a theologist, so I, I'm, I'm the wrong person to ask about the rights and wrongs of of individual theology or or the right or or what dictation is given or not given about what uh, items of clothing people should wear. There is a, a a very 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 and I can't say very enough times small number of Muslim women choose to wear a, a burqa. Um, I think one of the estimates that showed there's probably less than 300 Of course, it wasn't the actually UK. the burqa that Boris Johnson was talking yeah, about. He, he, was ta- his, he was talking about the niqab, which is, which, is a, which is a full face covering, but, but yeah. you can still see the yeah. eyes, whereas I think the burqa covers the, the eyes also is... A very, a, very, a, very, a very small number of people in Scotland. I, I, well, uh, well, I, can't, I don't think well, I've ever well, the number seen was, one. Well, the number was, I think the, the estimate was there's less than 300 across the UK. So there's less than 300 across the UK. Um, given that we have a much, much smaller um, population of Muslim women here, you're probably talking about dub, double digits at most yep. uh, in terms of women in, in Scotland. Um, but but that's not the point. The, the, however many women um, it is, is... I, I think it's wrong to jump to an assertion that every woman is wearing a piece of clothing because she is being dictated to, she is being forced to, she's being uh, abused, or as Nadine Doris disgracefully said, that it's to hide bruises because of domestic violence. Um, I, I think that's that, that's the that is horrific um, characterization. Um, I don't. I'm not in favour of any woman being forced to wear anything, whether that be a burqa or whether that be anything else. So, if anyone is being forced to wear any item of clothing, I don't care whether it's a, it's a perceived religious symbol or not. It is wrong. But I think the people who should be listened to in this isn't gruff white men like Boris Johnson, but actually Muslim women. And speak to Muslim women, um, give them a voice, and 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 allow them to speak for themselves. And, I, and actually, just on that, um, as part of our work on um, tackling Islamophobia. One of our work streams is on is on gender and Islamophobia, and one of the things that I am I am acutely aware of is there are so often other people who want to speak for Muslim women, mm. whether that be in Scotland, across the UK, or anywhere, and indeed across the world. Um, no, I think sometimes we need to vacate the space, even as Muslim men vacate the space and allow Muslim women to speak for themselves. And I'm I'm, I'm very acutely aware of that, and that's a, a piece of work that we're hopefully be doing. Through the cross-party group tackling Islamophobia, to create a platform where Muslim women can share their own experiences, um, not for for us to try and speak for them. Well, I, I took part in uh, one panel that you you did in the cross-party group. It was about Islamophobia in the media, but there was a lot of Muslim women that attended that and spoke very forcefully. Uh, and I, th- I think the idea that uh, they were oppressed or that there was there was a an issue with that that wasn't really borne out well, by I've, that. I've got to say, got to say the, so the cross party group attacking Islamophobia was launched in, in January, and I can honestly hand in heart say that the most active uh, participants who are drive, helping drive the agenda on the cross party group on tackling Islamophobia are Muslim women. Um, and some incredible, confident, talented, inspiring Muslim women and we need to give more and more of them a platform. And, so, but, and but, some but, very distressing stories about yeah, the abuse well, they've suffered well, well, as well. Let me just give you one, because you, you, you mentioned the stuff we did in, in, in January. Let, let me just give you one personal example. Uh, my wife wears a hijab um, and she's worn a hijab all the, all the time I've uh, known her. So a hijab is a, is a headscarf, not a covering her face. It's a, it's a headscarf that covers um, her hair. And um, there was one. There was one particular person who, who uh, during the leadership election uh, last year, um, who 
said that they could not vote for me in the leadership election because it was clear that I was a Muslim extremist who forced his wife to wear a, a headscarf. So I must have been suppressing uh, a woman and so I was going against the values of the Labour Party and they couldn't support me. Anyone who has ever met my wife knows that uh, no man, particularly this one, <laughs> uh, would have the guts to tell her what she could or she could not uh, wear. And it is, a, again, a, a wrong characterization of someone who was born in Glasgow, brought up in Glasgow, is Glasgow from her head to her toe, um, works uh, as a public servant in our NHS, is an NHS dentist, uh, studied in Glasgow. Um, there is so much more to her identity than just the fact that she wears a headscarf. Um, and if that's just one practical example in my house, there are countless other examples across the country. I'm aware that we're two men discuss, discussing this. But yeah, which, which, do, exa- do, which, do, do exa- there is which a, is exactly my point about how we, we need mm, to create platforms for Muslim uh, women to there, speak about There is an, an issue about those voices being absent from the media. Uh, I, I think I think there's a, there's an issue around um, diverse voices across the board being being present in in the media, and that that was one of the reasons why we um, organised a, a session with 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 editors of the print media. Um, and also broadcast media um, before the parliament went into recess, um, and it was quite telling that all the all the editors and representatives were all were all white males as, uh, as well, which was something that was reflected by by themselves uh, around the diversity or lack of diversity in newsrooms and in particular the the senior leadership of our of our media industry. Um, so yes, I think it's important that we have more diverse newsrooms. Um, that's something that's a commitment from from all the editors, which I'm very pleased uh, to see, uh, to work closely with the cross party group attacking Islamophobia to to take head on. Um, but there's also not just uh, around diversity in terms of the newsroom and, and the leadership of the media industry, but also about diverse voices that are that appear in the media. Um, and I think we've got to try and, as I say, vacate the space um, and give space to. To, to Muslim women to, to come and speak um, about their own experiences in their own terms. And, and as I say, I'm hoping once Parliament goes back into um, session after recess, it's something that we're going to move very quickly to do is to have a specific session on, on women and Islamophobia, um, where I want Muslim women to be leading that session and to be leading that conversation, leading that discussion and, and speaking directly to the media themselves. You've talked about the role of social media in, in, the, in a perceived rise in Islamophobia. How, how, how much blame do you think that the mainstream media should carry for it? <clears throat> it's interesting. So if you, if, you, if you look at every study that has been done with um, Muslims around Islamophobia and attitudes towards Islamophobia, in, in every study, when you're asked, who, do you, first they ask, do you believe there's been a rise in Islamophobia? And the answer predominantly has been yes. And then the question is, who do you blame for the rise in Islamophobia? The two worst culprits, in, and this is in, in, in polling and people's attitudes, is politicians and journalists. So you and I, David, we're to blame. Um, and politicians and journalists. And one is because people believe that politicians um, use um, dog whistle politics to try and create division in order to, in their view, um, try and garner political support from certain sections of society. And then second one is, is journalists because uh, unbalanced reporting, um, portrayals, descriptive language can, can often, um, you know, Muslim pedophiles, Muslim murderer, Muslim terrorist, etc., um, can help uh, create a, an atmosphere around a certain uh, faith or a certain community. And what I'm, and I'm, look, there's, there's two ways you can react to that. One way is you can attack the mainstream media. Um, 
and have a real go at them and see them as the enemy and, and all the rest of it. I think that's the wrong approach. I, I, I celebrate the fact that we have a free media. I want us to have a free media. Uh, the media will get lots of things right, they'll get lots of things wrong. Um, and when they get things right, we should we should praise them. When they get things wrong, we should, we should criticise them. Um, but I think a much more proactive and better response is for us to work and engage with the media industry. Um, at the end of the day, they're, all, they're also two humans. Um, and I think I think the the vast majority of the media industry wants to do the right thing and do it the right way. So I think we should proactively engage with them and try and, and try and tackle it that way. And that's part of what we're trying to do through the cross party group. And one of the things that was agreed, as as you'll know, David, because you were there um, with the editors group, was to try and shape a, a charter on on reporting of uh, of of uh, on on Muslims on 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 Muslim related issues, mm-hmm. uh, not to try and curb free speech, but just to make sure that language. It is used sensitively and, and tensions aren't inflamed and there's not inadvertent discrimination. Terrorism and the reporting of terrorism attacks in the UK is obviously one of the, the issues there that presents a lot of difficulties for, for the journalists. How, what, how, what, what are your thoughts on that general issue about the, 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 the obviously we've seen a, a terrorist attack yep. in, in London uh, just a few days ago. <coughs> how, how that plays into this issue and, and, and how society and, and the press need to try and deal with it. Look, I think, I think there, is, there is no doubt that the, the media must be allowed to report news because that is, it's, it's newsworthy, it is news and they should be allowed to report that news. Um, it's about the, the sensitivity and language and with, with which it's done. Uh, and the balance with, with which it's done. Um, and the point I'd make is this, is for Muslims living in Britain or Muslims anywhere in the world, they actually have a double pain when it comes to um, terrorism. The first pain they have is we are citizens of this country just like anybody else, and any attack on this country is an attack on us too. Um, so we feel the pain of an attack on our on our nation and our and our home. And what compounds that pain for us is when um, someone attempts to do that in the name of of the faith that you are part of. Um, that gives you the double pain. Um, these people, terrorists, are the enemies of Islam. Uh, and we must be very, very clear about that. They're the enemies of Islam who are trying to use the badge of their, of their faith to bring havoc, distress, and um, division into our country. And I think we all have a responsibility now. Um, and this is, a, this is a much wider challenge, I think, that goes beyond terrorism. For those people that believe in the forces of justice, for equality, um, and for peace and unity, staying silent is no longer an option. It's no longer an option. Um, I always believed that good would always be evil. Uh, that in the end, um, the truth would always win, good would be evil, and we would change society and make it more positive. I don't believe that anymore. We can't We can't just hope that that's going to happen because um, there are too many voices of evil out there now who want to divide our, divide us as communities and divide us as, as nations and as, and as different identities. So if you believe in the principle of equality and peace and unity and justice, regardless of faith, right across all faiths and all different backgrounds, staying silent is no longer an option. Use your voice, raise your voice, and, and we've got to fight for this now. You seem disillusioned, or that you... It feels like you're a lot optimistic about the world than you maybe were a few years ago. Is that fair? Um, <clears throat> I'm optimistic about um, the humans in our world rather than the, than the world itself. 
Um, I, I think there is no doubt that if you look in global politics, um, people are moving to the extremes, um, and they're 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 um, and more extreme forces are being uh, elected in different parts of the world. But when that happens, I think the peoples in those countries need to be much more closely knit, even if the leaders of those countries aren't. And a good example is the US and the UK. Um, I think the leadership of the US and the UK are both an absolute car crash and a shambles. That doesn't mean the UK and the US needs to break relations. It means that the people of the UK and the US who believe in the shared values that I talked about need to work much more closely together in the absence of that leadership of our two countries to try and still fight for peace and equality across the world. Let's let's take a more narrow focus. Let's let's talk about the the Labour Party and how how they deal with these issues. Um, people listening to this will be aware that, that we discussed some of the stories that uh, the record published earlier in the year. Uh, one of your count- uh, Labour colleagues, who is a councillor, is currently suspended pending an investigation uh, over comments that he allegedly made, made to you uh, during the Scottish Labour leadership campaign last year. Are you happy with how that process is being conducted? Well, the, the, the honest um, answer to that is um, it's not a process that is dictated by by me or a process that is that is driven by me. I was <clears throat> I spoke about my own experiences with the intention of um, creating a space for us to have an open debate and dialogue about the issues of racism and Islamophobia um, in our country. Um, so we didn't have an exceptionalism in Scotland as if somehow bad things didn't happen here. And I think I think we've been successful in sparking that debate and having that discussion. The challenge, I think, now is now that we've sparked that debate and discussion is to try and affect some positive change from that discussion. And that's what I'm focused on. Um, when I said what I did, um, when, I, when I spoke out about what I did, um, I was asked by the Labour Party to disclose the name of the individual to them. Um, I was I'm, I agreed to do that. I'm, I've got um, I had no reason to hide that, um, and then it became a matter for the Labour Party to, to investigate and take the action that they did. Um, it has run on for a, for a it's long been a time. Long, it's a long it's process. Been, what, nearly nearly eight months, um, but my my view has always been the same throughout the whole thing, which is not a matter for me. It's for a matter for the Labour Party. This has never been about one individual. It's been about what's happening in classrooms and workplaces, in college, university campuses across the country. And the second part of that is I, I don't I don't believe I generally don't believe that the way we overcome all forms of prejudice is by is by hanging people. It's by getting people to recognise the mistakes they made and to change themselves and to challenge themselves. Um, and my hope would have been and continues to be that people who say inappropriate things or do inappropriate things reflect on that behaviour and, and take the opportunity to learn and to change. Because there is a wider question about the Labour Party's process for dealing with racism. I, I, I want to talk about anti-Semitism uh, and get your thoughts on that. Obviously, there's been a deluge of criticism about the way uh, Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour leadership have dealt with, with this issue. What, what, are, what are your general thoughts? Well, my, my, first, my, my first and overriding thought is <clears throat> that it's not been handled well. I think, that, <clears throat> I think that's very obvious that it's not been handled very well at all, and I think it's... <clears throat> it's been a rather unfortunate and sad episode for the Labour Party over the last number of weeks. But let's stick to the principles of the matter. And the principle of the matter is this. I'm talking about Islamophobia. And part of the work I'm doing around Islamophobia will be to try and define Islamophobia and for that definition to be adopted by 
um, the UK government, the Scottish government, different authorities, <coughs> and by our legal system. Is that not happened at the minute? There's no. So there's, so there's, so there's, there's currently definition. no. There is currently no working definition for Islamophobia um, that is adopted by our institutions, and that needs to change. That and we're doing work in partnership with the uh, all-party parliamentary group of British Muslims um, at Westminster, which is being led by <coughs> Baroness Warsi. Um, West Streeting and Anna Subri, <clears throat> and my um, what I'm, the point I'm making about principle here is, once we have a definition <clears throat> that's been helped to be shaped by and led by Muslims in the UK, <clears throat> I would accept. I would expect you struggling people, there. It sounds like no, no. I would expect people to accept that definition <clears throat> and not to challenge it and say, you know, it's the wrong wrong definition. <clears throat> The exact same way the Jewish community should be rightfully taking the lead on defining what anti-Semitism is. So it's for the Jewish community to decide and to shape what the definition of anti-Semitism is because they're the ones that experience it. It's for the Muslim community to define what Islamophobia is and to help define it because they're the ones that experience it. It's for the LGBT community to help shape and define what homophobia is because they're the ones that experience it. It's for ethnic minority communities to help define what racism is because they're the ones that experience it. And I think it is wrong for us to suggest that those people who are the ones that experience those forms of prejudice, somehow that definition is not accepted. I think that, that that's a very principled point. So <clears throat> I think the Labour Party, without delay, should adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism immediately and without delay and without caveats. Accept the definition. <clears throat> Why do you think they haven't that, done that already? <clears throat> I think there is... There is clearly a debate and discussion around the Middle East peace process or the lack of a Middle East peace process, which is clouding this discussion. And, and let, let me just um, say, say some things about that. I apologise, my throat got croaky there. Yeah, no, it's just at, at the wrong if moment. A, if you want to have a drink of water, at the wrong, please at do. the wrong moment. So I support the IHRA definition on anti-Semitism, and I think it should be adopted. And I see no contradiction in that in terms of my views about the actions of the Israeli government. So I am a critic of the Israeli government. I'm a vocal critic of the Israeli government. I have on several occasions in the Scottish Parliament, stood up in the Scottish Parliament and condemned the actions of Benjamin Netanyahu, his government, um, around the um, Middle East peace process, the, um, the situation in Gaza, the continued occupation. Uh, when Mark Regev was visiting the Scottish Parliament, um, while he was in the Scottish Parliament, I made a point of... Um, ask a question, the First Minister questions, which called on, on him and his government to recognise that um, they were going against the values of peace that were breaking international law by the continuing situation in Gaza and the West Bank. There is no contradiction between the IHRA definition and the ability to say that Benjamin Netanyahu is a odious individual who is a, a stain on international peace and by saying that the actions of the Israeli government go against several UN resolutions and um, are inhumane, unjust, and completely and utterly despicable. There is no contradiction in that. And I think we are allowing ourselves to tie ourselves in knots by claiming there is a contradiction in that. What we are talking about here is the fact that anti-Semitism is real. Mm. And anti-Semitism in many parts of society are on the rise and it is not appropriate for the actions of the Israeli government 
to be used as a way of discriminating against the Jewish community more widely. Just the exact same way it is completely inappropriate for the actions of uh, terrorists who do terrorist acts in the name of Islam to be representative of the Muslim community. And I think a much more sensible approach would be to accept the IHRA definition to recognise that anti-Semitism remains a cancer and a stain in our society and one that we must robustly challenge and at the same time continue to uh, condemn the actions of the Israeli government. But we should be able to do it in a way that separates the two issues. Um, I'll give you an example on that, David. I, when, when I set up the cross-party group on tackling Islamophobia, I made a point of inviting representatives of all faith communities to come and join that cross-party group. One of the reasons for that is because it's got to be a collective effort and collective fight for all of us. Secondly, you only have credibility in, in, in fighting against one form of prejudice if you show solidarity against other forms of prejudice. Sure. The fact of the matter is sexism, racism, homophobia, anti-Semitism, Islamophobia and all other forms of prejudice are real, they exist. And if we allow those individual communities to only be the ones fighting on those causes, we are going to collectively fail. You can't leave the fight against Islamophobia to Muslims. You can't leave the fight against anti-Semitism to the Jewish community. You can't leave the fight against uh, homophobia to the LGBT community or sexism to women alone. We as a collective have got to stand up together as a collective and fight on these issues. But we should also have the ability to separate the, the, the international situation, the geopolitical situation from these equality issues. And that's why... Um, do I work very closely with, with Skojek, I work very closely with the Muslim Council of, of Scotland and um, and just if I, I'll answer that point, the question you just asked in a second I, I um, one of the things that struck me is when I met with Skojek um, who do a fantastic job representing the Jewish community here in, in Scotland um, we met to discuss the shared interests that we have around anti-Semitism and Islamophobia because there are so many shared ideas, so many um, shared experiences and so many um, shared knowledge that we can we can have with each other and something that as a piece of work that we're going to do in the coming months um, as well. But that in, in that entire time that we discussed the challenges around anti-Semitism and Islamophobia and what we could do to work together, in that two-hour conversation, not once did the conversation around the Middle East peace process come into it because it's not relevant to that. We, should, we, we must be able to separate the genuine fights against prejudice um, and also the genuine geopolitical situation that's happening in the Middle East. Um, I, I see no contradiction in that. And I think we should stop conflating the two. Let's separate uh, that issue from the anti-Semitism issue. Let's stand shoulder to shoulder with the Jewish community, just the exact same way that I'm pleased so many of the Jewish community are standing shoulder to shoulder with us on the issue of Islamophobia to root out prejudice in all its forms. And separate to that, we can talk about the geopolitics. Yeah, you asked a question, sorry, about... Uh, I, just, I just wondered if you thought that Jeremy Corbyn was struggling to separate the international context from the equality issue. Look, I, I think it's, it's safe to say that it's not been handled well. Um, I think um, it's taken far too long for us to, to get where we have got to. Um, I think a much more reasonable and, and I'm more interested in what we do going forward rather than talking about what's happened in the past. I think a much more sensible approach for us to, for us would be to accept the IHRA definition, which is accepted by the UK government, by the Scottish government um, and by institutions across the world. And many of those institutions reserve the right and the freedom to um, condemn the actions of the, the government of Israel. We should accept the IHRA definition without fail, uh, without delay, sorry. Um, and separate to that, we can continue to 
um, advocate for a, a peaceful and just um, settlement for, for Palestinians. Just finally then, what would be progress on this? If we come back and have a similar discussion in a year's time, what would you what difference would you like to have achieved by then? Look look I'm I'm realistic in, in saying that uh, I don't think there's a silver bullet. Uh, I don't think just in, in setting up the cross party group on tackling Islamophobia on getting increments of change that we're automatically gonna see a dramatic fall in in Islamophobia and prejudice. Um, there is a huge tide which we're going to have to push against, and um, I think I think the measure of, of of hate crimes and how they increase and, and the scale of it is 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 an open ended one. So I, I'm I don't want to say what success or failure is in terms of the on on stemming that tide. I think what success would be is first of all an acceptance that Islamophobia exists. Um, I think for too many people. Uh, too much energy has been lost on making the argument whether it exists or not. I think we need to have an acceptance that it does exist. And once we accept that it exists, we can then focus on what we do about it. Second to that is having a working definition that can help shape our legal system, um, help shape how our governments act and operate, but then also can help shape a, a policy agenda, I think is important. Um, and then third to that, I think a large part is is education. Uh, and that's partly education in our schools around around tolerance, um, but also around what's happening in our classrooms, around bullying, uh, what we're teaching in our schools. I think that's a huge part. There's an employment angle to it as well around access to an employment market and a fair access to the employment market. And then, as I say, there's a final part around around gender and Islamophobia, particularly the, the impact it's had on on Muslim women or people who are, are misrecognised as, as Muslim women. And, that, and that's something that I think we need to do in partnership um, with the media industry, in partnership with all other communities. Um, and it's something that I look forward to, to getting my teeth into when we get back into Parliament. Okay. Anna Sarwar, thank you very much. Thank you. Uh-huh.